dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Our culture today is at a turning point in many ways. In general, we are deciding whether or not to allow our Christian faith to continue to inform and direct our cultural decisions. It seems very tempting to go the route of secularism, a neutrality with respect to faith, at least in public, in order to let religion be a purely private affair. But is this the way for Christian leaders? What value does our faith have in the public sphere? Surprisingly, the life of the Virgin Mary can help us find the way. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm glad to be back with you. We're taking another look here more deeply this time at the life of the Virgin Mary as a leader and as the an example of leadership. Now, we all know, of course, that our Lord is the example of leader, the king of all leadership. And yet, just like you can understand the beauty of light, sometimes by holding up a prism, right, that dissects that light into special, you know, colors and makes all of it, you know, everything that's contained in the brilliance of light uh, able to be seen and appreciated in all of its different parts. Well, in the same way that the beauty of Christ is manifested by the life of his followers. And when we look at different followers, we can see, you know, written in the letters of their lives, well, the beautiful handwriting of the Lord. And the message that God wants to make known in Jesus spelled out through the lives of the saints. This is what's just so neat about it. You know, getting close to people who know Jesus always helps us to know him better. Therefore, especially if you get to know the Virgin Mary and you get to listen to her life and watch what she did, well, you can learn about Jesus in a whole special way. And if that's true about Jesus in general, then it's also true about the leadership that he gives the world. So let's look at how the Virgin Mary led. It's a beautiful study. We've gone through her life and the different lessons that we can gain from looking at the different stages in her life so far from, you know, the cross to Cana to the miracles to the birth of Jesus to the Magnificat to the Annunciation. Looking at how this woman so extraordinarily influenced the world, even from a position that seems rather small from in terms of a social influence or social standing. She was just a mother. She was just an aunt, right? She was just a cousin. She was just a spouse. She never graduated from rabbinical school. She didn't start her own business. But it shows us like all of us who have influence and are running our businesses or are leading in in the professional sphere, sometimes we can think a little bit too haughtily of ourselves. We can say, well, since I have these positions, I am a great leader. I'm like, no, (laughs) that's the whole thing. We'd like for you to be a great leader in those positions, but it's two different things. One is to earn a position and the other is to, to demonstrate leadership. It's not the same thing. And the bigger company that you work for, the more those two can be divorced, 
And the more that a company simply focuses in on the bottom line and on profit margins, which are, of course, fine things to focus in on. But if that becomes to the degree that that becomes the exclusive focus, your workplace culture will be open to toxicity and threat. The consistent treatment of workers with dignity will be threatened and corruption becomes a real workplace possibility. This is why it's so important for us to rediscover the necessity for leadership studied and appreciated and developed independently of power positions, right? And this is maybe what's so challenging about the life of the Virgin Mary, precisely because she didn't have a power position in terms of society or the economic sphere. We, we, we tend to discount her leadership saying, well, there's no way for her to lead, but that only demonstrates our ignorance. In fact, Mary led more than anyone else save Christ because of the intensity of her character and the ethical position that she took, which was free from the influences of the society around her. I mean, if anyone was free and gave herself freely in, this, in the pursuit of Christ, it was the Virgin Mary. She stood underneath his cross, right? Even while he was crucified and treated as a blasphemer, Mary allowed what he suffered to redound into her own heart and she didn't run from it. Why? Because she was demonstrating to the world where her decision lay and the one whom she would follow. And then you could ask, well, who was it that she influenced? I would say she influenced everyone around her, most notably St. John the Apostle. Most notably, Mary Magdalene. No, most notably, Simon Peter and the church. And we see this because on the morning of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent to the apostles, we find them gathered in prayer with Mary in the upper room. Now, a little context here helps us understand what had happened. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He appeared to the apostles over the course of 40 days. And then 40 days after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And before going into heaven, he told his apostles who were with him, go into Jerusalem and pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he was taken up from them and went up and to be glorified and seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And so the apostles did just that. They went back to Jerusalem and there they prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, how long did they pray? Well, 40 days after Easter equals a Thursday. Easter being a Sunday equals a Thursday, Ascension Thursday. And then from Ascension Thursday until Pentecost Sunday is how many days? Nine, right? That's where we get the Latin word novena from. To do nine days of prayer for a special intention is in small form an imitation of what the apostles did as they spent nine days in prayer waiting for the coming of the promised spirit upon them. And where were they in prayer and with whom were they in prayer? They were in prayer in the upper room, which is the same room where Jesus celebrated the last, uh, last supper with the apostles. So a very special place for them where they received ordination of the priesthood. They received the blessed sacrament and the Eucharist and his body and his blood. This is where they were gathered in prayer. And who were they with? They were with Mary teaching them how to pray. Now, again, if you look at the, the source of power, all of these apostles went all over the world. They shed their blood for Christ. But why? Because they'd received the Holy Spirit. Now, why had they received the Holy Spirit? Because they were gathered in prayer. With whom? With Mary. Meaning that in, in, a, in a very real sense, 
Mary's prayer and Mary's example of dedication to prayer in the Holy Spirit is at the source of all of the apostolic work of the church. All of the ministry that these men would do in the name of Christ flowed from this moment where together with Mary, the silent, prayerful woman, they received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church begins by passively receiving the power of God and then ends by actively distributing that same Holy Spirit in power even to the ends of the earth. And yet at its very beginning, it's there in that reception with Mary. And this is where again the, the power of Mary's faith and her hope and her love is extended. You want to say what the influence of Mary is? It's bringing all 12 apostles into a unified prayer for nine days, thirsting for the Holy Spirit of God. That's an incredible influence. It's just not visible, not seen. Well, how many people today are changing our world from the inside in an invisible, unseen way? And just because they're unappreciated doesn't mean they're without value. This is the incredible working of God to change the world by hidden instruments. People, you know, who, are, who can do nothing more than pray and yet who stand strong in that conviction of their prayer and of their faith, unbending. I think many of them are much more inspirational than many of you, frankly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I appreciate all that you do and everything, but all of us know that doing things in a sense is easier than being faithful and every fiber of our being, no matter what, we can even hide sometimes behind our good works. What if God took away all those good works? Where would you be? What's your relationship with him look like? That's where Our Lady shines for us. Everything that she was, the deep parts of her being was given to God. And that means that everywhere she was, she bent towards God. She, she, she catalyzed towards God. Mary was the most influential of people because she was the most steadfast and solid in allowing the faith to penetrate every aspect of her person so that wherever she was, she was leading. And wherever her leadership was, the influence was the most profound. And that's given to us in glimpse here as we see her praying with the 12 apostles who would bring the church to the farthest corners of the world. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. So if we read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here we have a depiction of the early church awaiting the promised Holy Spirit with Mary in the upper room. And we can ask ourselves, well, what impact would Mary have? If she's going to be a leader, it means she's going to be influencing, right? So what's the influence that she would have borne upon the church? 
It couldn't have been one of training them in Greek, right? That doesn't make sense. Or teaching them, you know, how to, how to raise money when they're, they're out doing fundraising for the church, right? That's not what, I mean, what, what, what was Mary's point? What was she doing? What's the value of having a, a spiritual authority in your family, for example? Or, or you know, what's the value of the old, your old grandmother and, and her prayers for you or the pious practices of your parents and their generation, I'm going to say, what's the value of having a perspective of life that's infused by faith? Well, on the one hand, you could say it doesn't have much value at all. I mean, we've got to make real life decisions. We're important people. There are real things happening that we're responsible for. And it's the brass tacks of what goes on every day. That, that's really what matters. And leadership is your ability to navigate in the real world. And we put our faith world and therefore the ethical world, right? The world of the heart on the side. We say, we don't know about those things, but we're here to make a profit and to make a greater profit margin, expand our, our market share, to hit our objectives, to nail our numbers. And that's where our great leadership will be. It'll be in people that can do that. And I just kind of shake my head a little bit because on the one hand, that's nice because then you're in a neutral zone. It's, it's almost like saying, all we care about is numbers and measurement. And if we can care about numbers and measurement, we can all agree that that's where the bottom line increases and that's going to give the best, you know, uh, dividends to our shareholders. And therefore it's going to be what by the measure by which we gauge a successful business. And I'm not saying that that's not true. There, there's a lot of truth there. You do want to expand your numbers. You do want to give a return on investment that's adequate to your shareholders. You do want to expand a business. It's not either or it's a both and because if on the one hand, if that's your only focus, then you're going to treat your patients in your doctor's office, you know, according to what the insurance company tells you, you have to. And in your very practice of medicine itself is going to be degraded. You're not going to want to be the doctor that you work so hard to be because you feel like you're just a cog in the machine of the insurance companies that are dictating everything to you. And even the people of the insurance companies, you're working there and you say, man, I just feel like all this is driven by is, is a standard that's not human. And it's true. In order to keep a, a human standard at the center of a business, you have to have something bigger than numbers driving you. You have to have a spirit of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding, and of appreciation for the dignity of the human person and the real purpose of a human life, which is greater than simply economic factors. But when we, and then this is the danger of a secularistic viewpoint. There, there are certainly advantages to certain things that are being secular. And I'm not going to create a broad and sweeping accusation of things that are, are difficult to define. But in general, when you put God on the side and say he doesn't have any influence over our social decisions and believers need to put their faith at the door and use other standards by which to judge different cases and make decisions in a social world, you're depriving the world of a leadership at the deepest of levels. And wherever there's a vacuum like that in terms of a perspective of leadership, it will be filled by another standard. So let's not be naive about this. The secularist vision of the world also contains a standard. If we're not going to say, in other words, that human life is about glorifying God and loving our fellow human beings, well, then what are we saying human life is all about? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. Go ahead and ask you, you know, what is the point of making this additional profit? 
What is true value, you know, worked for? Is it okay to outsource our, our labor so that we people in the United States lose their jobs in order to increase the bottom line and or in other countries where we don't have to pay them as much? Or maybe in countries whose systems re, 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 deny their people or deprive their people of freedom. Is it okay to back up an economic system that continues to allow people and workers to, to subsist in subhuman conditions so that our companies can thrive? Well, that's a great question, right? And to what degree can you do that? And et cetera. I mean, but like, it's a question that needs to be asked. And I wonder if you can really answer that question in purely economic terms. Is an economy, in other words, its own reference point? Is profit really its own guiding star? I don't think so at all, at all. And this is uh, coming from a Christian perspective. We have to put our foot in the door before the door is closed and say, hang on a second, we cannot allow this because when you deny a Christian worldview, you're denying a worldview that says that every human being was made in the image and likeness of God and has, is destined towards God and that every human being has the right in the workplace to live in accordance with that destiny, which means that the workplace itself needs to be open to a vision of life that's greater than pure profit and efficiency. And that, my friends, will not only benefit the worker, it will also save our experience of work from the grind of futility and from a terribly myopic vision for the value of work itself. When we fight for Christian leadership, in other words, we're not just fighting for, for, for faith. Regardless of what your belief is, that's a one thing. One thing is to try to make people believe. That's the work of the church, as church, as liturgy, as the breathing body of Christ, right? That's fine. But the church's position is not purely one of encouraging belief. It's also one of defending true humanity. And in the workplace environment, we can very well say we're not here to force belief from people. We're not even here to encourage belief in people. We're here to produce a product. And yet we're going to produce that product in a way that's consonant with the dignity of the human person that we know from our faith so that believers and non-believers alike can benefit from a perspective that says we were made with a purpose and that purpose is as high as the heavens and that our life has as much value as if a God himself were to have created it. I mean, it's an incredible perspective. And it's one that's, I think, refreshing even to folks who are not believers. You don't have to believe. You don't have to agree with Christianity to realize what an amazing lifestyle and vision of man and the family and work that the Christian life gives. And that's the role of a Christian leader. It's to keep that door open to the full truth of what work is all about and what our life is all about and keeping those two in proper alignment. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. Looking at Our Lady in the upper room with the 12 apostles, we see a mother, a mother of the heart. I want to tell you the story of St. Philippine Rose Duchenne. She's an American saint. She actually is French, but she came over to work with the Native Americans in the city of St. Louis at the time and help educate them and bring some solace to them. But she could never learn English. 
And so she spent her life speaking in French and then many times just being silent uh, and witnessing by her prayer and by making little things to catechize the, the, the children or to make their life a little bit better. There's a famous story of the fact that she would kneel and pray for sometimes three or four hours a day in front of the tabernacle. And the, the little children from the reservation would come and they'd put corn on the back of her habit just to see if she got up and left and moved when they, when they left her. And when they came back inside, they would find the corn still along the hem of her habit, meaning that she hadn't moved in three or four hours, kneeling there praying. They, they nicknamed her the woman who prays. And it's an astounding truth that at the ordination of four American priests who were destined to be missionaries and sent out from St. Louis into to the, to the West to evangelize the Western culture, including Father Desmet, who walked from St. Louis to Oregon twice across the American prairie, converting many different members of the tribes. Uh, at the moment of that ordination, when these four men were sent, Philippine Rose Duchenne was quietly there in the church at the time praying for them. And, and you see this dynamic, the same thing as she was silently offering herself to God in prayer, but in that conviction, right, of the moral stance of what life was really all about, right? We see the kind of energy of the priests flowing for, to take that same message of that spiritual reality out into the world through their actions and through their labors and through everything that they did, they were, they were making known a truth that goes deeper than action. That's witnessed to by the souls that give themselves entirely to that life, like Philippine Rose Duchenne. And like the, like the apostles went forth to the four corners of the world, they went forth from the side of the Virgin Mary because they were there proclaiming a spiritual stance of faith, hope, and love that Mary was able to embody in the silence and the stillness of her motherhood. Now, this is a, an incredible dynamic because to take it a step further, you could almost see the church doing the same thing with respect to the world. To say to the whole world whose activities are as varied as selling cars, to grooming pets, to building houses, right? All these different things that we have to do in our life. To say to all the world, the reason we do that is found here. We do all of that in order to bring God's love and perfection and excellence into this world. To make this world more like God and to make God a little bit closer to this world. And, and that, that type of prophecy, prophetic voice is embodied by the church's contemplative stance that we first of all be one with the Lord in order to then witness to the world of the right way to act. Maybe this is the reason why we say, we call the church the Holy Mother, the church, because like Holy Mother Mary was to the apostles, so the church is to the world. Now, I'd like to bring all this to focus on the simple question of the secularism of our society. You know, because secularism is a, is, is a tempting thing. By a secularistic position, you say, look, put all faith aside. Let's agree to simply coexist. Differences don't matter anymore. And we're not even going to say faith really matters. What matters is, and then you can fill in the blank. But you're going to fill in the blank with something. If you're going to say the perspective of a human person open to heaven, that's that a human person that comes from God and is destined to go back to God, we're going to put that on the side. Well, you're going to replace it with something. 
And what's your definition going to be? You're going to say, well, we're just going to look at every human being as, I don't know, the product of evolution over the years. Okay, well, that's fine, but that's a considerable drop in dignity. Looking at yourself, you know, you are basically an evolved frog. So congratulations. At one point, you were all frogs, and that's what you, that's what you are. That's all we're going to treat you as, as evolved frogs. And what happens when you die? We don't really know. That means we don't really know what the purpose of life is here. Everyone can make up their own mind privately about that. And, and you could say, okay, that's tempting. I'm just going to say, well, then what are you putting forth? And what you're going to put forth or what's commonly put forth today is, well, then what we're going to live for is profit or pleasure or power. And our business will therefore serve those goals. That's what I mean. It's just, it's, it's irresponsible for us as a society to allow that to happen because it's irresponsible to say that when you put religion on the side, there's nothing that takes its place. No, something does take its place and whatever takes its place will be less than the glorious perspective that we have as Christians and our understanding of the human dignity and the purpose of work that we have as Christians. And this is where Mary can help remind us in her leadership. She kept the apostles focused on the essential thing. For nine days, these men of action, fishermen, tax collectors, everything that they were in their private lives, these men of actions who were afraid of what could happen with their lives stayed in one place and prayed together with her. That's, that's quite a feat. But she's reminding them all, hey, wait a second. Don't lose the perspective of what you are really all about. And, and, and by her embodying that and teaching them that prayer, she lifted them to make sure that when they went out and did their apostolic work, that they would do it with the perspective of heaven and that they would treat the people that were with them and put them on that same trajectory. We're here on earth in order to bring earth closer to heaven and heaven closer to earth. But we're not here on earth as if we didn't know what we were all about. And that's what a lot of leaders today act like. We allow a whole other perspectives to dominate our decisions. And I, and I don't think we should. I think that we owe it to the world to fight for this higher level of dignity, to treat our students as if they were, had minds that were capable of truth, of beauty, of greatness, right? To treat our patients in the medical facilities as if their suffering had dignity and as if life had value, no matter what its condition to treat our different clients in their financial services as if they were the incredibly powerful people that they are to do good in this world and not do ill, to get behind the human being everywhere we find human beings and the human quest for true goodness, for true greatness, for everything that's excellent. That's our role. But man, if we let that role go, when we surrender ourselves into different perspectives, who will remind the world of its greatness? Mary reminded the apostles of the true goal. The apostles are to remind the world of its true goal. You are those apostles. You are positioned by Christ in society and in business in order to remind the world of heaven and to wake up the world for hope. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications 
at stjohninstitute.org and visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.